According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, this morning we are in the book of Isaiah, and this morning we arrive at chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48, continuing our chapter by chapter roller coaster through this book. To try to teach Isaiah in 66 weeks is... Uh, not possible. But what is possible is to get the big idea, to get the big picture, to understand the overall view of the depth that is available. I believe, uh, and others have made similar comments, that uh, 66 chapters is analogous to 66 books. Our Bible is comprised of 66 books in the canon of Scripture. In 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, in many respects, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, form a parallel to that, where really we have 39 chapters that is focused on wrath and judgment, by and large, and then in chapter 40 we begin, comfort, oh comfort, my people Israel. And we have a a shift of tone in the second portion of Isaiah, so much so that there are skeptics that actually think that there were different authors involved, two or even three different human authors uh, calling themselves Isaiah. In any event, we've given you all of that in the introduction to this series. Uh, We believe, I believe, Jesus specifically stated that there was one Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet that Jesus quoted, and Jesus quoted from all the various places within Isaiah that these so-called experts would tell you uh, were not written by Isaiah, all right? So I'm going to believe in Jesus and how he cited uh, this text in, uh, in his earthly ministry. So this morning we come to Isaiah chapter 48, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who come forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. So we have a problem here. They are swearing by his name, but they're lying. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. All right, this is where we are. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to give each believer priest the opportunity to confess anything silently before the Lord that needs to be dealt with and to humble your heart for the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful for the grace provision you've supplied to each born-again believer. Father, unlike previous ages, in our, in our day and age, Father, every born-again believer in Jesus Christ receives God the Holy Spirit. And that permanent indwelling, Father, is such a blessing for us as it uh, empowers us, Father, to study your living and abiding word. Because, Father, the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. We call upon you now in your faithfulness, Father, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us the ears to hear. Bless us through the truth of your word on this day. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Now, you might be tempted to uh, listen to verse 1 here. Hear this, O house of Jacob, and say, well, that's not me, so why should I care? (laughs) All right, I'm not the house of Jacob. I don't have to listen to a now hear this kind of message. Well, not so fast. All right, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And we can learn from the warnings that Israel failed to heed. We can learn from every passage of scripture if we rightly divide the word of truth. We want to understand this in their context, in their setting, so that we can make the proper application in our context, in our setting. Because the very things they fell short in, we can fall short in as well. We can fall short by having an external show. We can name the name of Jesus Christ and come together in a church building on a Sunday with a sign out front. But if the reality is not present in what we're doing and why we're doing it, then we will come under a very similar message of, uh, of judgment and wrath in our own generation. So we want to be clear on what's being said here in, uh, in this passage. I'm going to break it down for you today and uh, try to keep an eye on the clock so we pace ourselves through the chapter. Um, I would hate for us to run out of time and not get to the last part of the chapter. I might even, there's an 
ornery part of my mind that wants to start at the end of the chapter and teach that part first. Um, but if I did that, I would be admitting failure. So I'm going to take it through in order, verse by verse, and we will finish the chapter before uh, our time expires today. But these first 11 verses, uh, as we work our way through verses 1 through 11, I think it's best if we understand the setting for this, the perspective on these verses, as coming from the, uh, the perspective of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. That we have, as in so many places prophetically, the prophet Isaiah is putting himself forward in a view to see things not as they actively are in his day and age, but as they actively are in Jesus Christ's day and age, when he walked this earth during his earthly ministry, say, from 30 to 33 AD. What were the circumstances in the nation of Israel at that point of time? And I think if we, if we take ourselves and put ourselves in that perspective, we do much better in these first 11 verses than if we try to find contemporaneous circumstances in the 6th century, contemporaneous circumstances back in Isaiah's day and age. Um, a lot of folks try, a lot of folks write uh, wordy commentaries to prove their cases, but I think it's more natural to just take ourselves forward because we're not going to stop there. We're not going to stop with first advent in this chapter. We're going to move on to second advent as well. We're going to see the tribulation as well. We're going to see really what uh, often happens in prophetic passages as a panorama view of the things that are yet to come for the nation of Israel. And so hopefully this uh, will be clear to us as well. So they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. And we are reminded of our Savior's ministry when he encountered a lot of these self-righteous Pharisees and a lot of these Jewish people that felt, hey, we're special, we're the chosen ones, and we are children of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anybody, as they so proudly proclaimed in John chapter 8, some of the passages that we saw last hour, this morning even. All right, now. Let's go through, in fact, I'm going to read through 11 verses as a unit, and then we'll come back and uh, get some points of study. Uh, Verse 3, I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass, because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. Therefore, I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you, so that you would not say, my idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard, look at all this, and you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago, And before today you have not heard them, so that you will not say, Behold, I knew them. (laughs) Okay? And so each step of the way, God is acting in ways that human beings can't come along after the fact and say, Well, I knew that. Okay? Or, My idol said that. Because none of the idols prophesy the way that God alone prophesies. And then, when He comes and He starts to uh, unveil some of the, the foreshadowings of the church, like he does in the Upper Room Discourse, there is not a clue that any of that stuff is coming along at all. And I think that's vital for us to recognize here today also. All right, where did I leave off? Verse 8, you have not heard, you have not known. Even from long ago, your ear has not been opened, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously. You have been called a rebel from birth. There's a reputation for you, (laughs) all right? For this, And of course, he comes in the fullness of times, and they put him to death. They hung him on the cross. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you, in order to not cut you off. To this day, I think uh, Israel laments the destruction of their city in 70 AD. And I think what they fail to identify is how merciful God was to destroy the city in 70 AD, to disperse them to the four corners of the earth, to put his plan for Israel on hold while he works out his plan for the church. But understand that there is a future for Israel, and he has already now brought them back into the land, and he will start to deal with them as a nation again when the church uh, departs. Verse 10 says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. 
I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And all of that, what he's done up through this point, through first advent, is nothing compared to what he's going to do in the tribulation and in the second advent of Jesus Christ. There he will refine them as silver and bring them uh, purified through into the millennial kingdom. Finally, then verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. Not for you guys, (laughs) not for you. You haven't earned it. You haven't deserved it. If anything, you are as stiff necked as you've always been. Your forehead is like brass, right? All the preaching in the world just hits you and bounces right off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I will not give to another. God absolutely will not give his glory to another. This, by the way, is a powerful line of evidence for folks that want to deny the deity of Christ for whatever reason. God himself shares his glory with Jesus Christ, while at the same time saying, I will not give my glory to another. So what does that tell you? I and the Father are one. That Jesus Christ is God, very God. The Word been made flesh. And a whole uh, line of argumentation that we can take it from there. All right, so here's the first half of the chapter. And we're going to shift scenes for some of the other paragraphs and some of the other verses and details that follow. But let's stick with this for now and understand that the plan of God for the coming of the Christ was announced long ago, and it must be fulfilled. This plan was announced long ago, and it must be fulfilled. And this is the nature of Old Testament theology, the nature of Old Testament revelation. From the very beginning, there was a promise that the seed of the woman was going to come and crush the serpent's head. And then through subsequent prophets and subsequent scriptures, as more and more details were then unfolded, the the total picture became clear. I like the uh, introduction, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, and how does the book of Hebrews start? It says, God long ago spoke to the fathers in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days has spoken to us in his son. All right, and there's a summary snapshot for how do you deal with Old Testament theology. You take the many portions in many ways and you point them all to Jesus Christ in his first advent. And you see what he fulfilled and what was expected of him. That he was born of a virgin, that he was born in Bethlehem and all the other prophecies that he was going to be a son of Abraham, he was going to be a son of Judah, he was going to be a son of David. All of the prophecies that, that featured on the coming of Christ. That he was going to be humble, riding on a colt. And all of these things were fulfilled in Jesus Christ's first earthly ministry. And it's uh, startling, so remarkable in fact, that uh, Jesus had to reinforce this doctrine with his disciples. We've already read Isaiah 48, but in Luke 24 we see this. They were so shell-shocked, I think, by the events of the cross, and still in denial, even three days later on Resurrection Sunday, and uh, so when he appears to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, and then when he appears to the 11 disciples in the upper room, and a week later when he appears to all, uh, the others with, with Thomas being present, um, he, the, what he points out is how these things must be fulfilled. And time and again, this is the, uh, the message. In Luke 24, I know I said 44 on the, on the screen, but go ahead and add verse 25 to that also. Verse 25 and verse 44. Because when he's talking to these two guys on the Emmaus Road, he calls them names. (laughs) He says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, God has announced this long ago. Why are you not listening? Why are you not listening? It's like when he says, I'm going to die and rise again on the third day. And Peter says, far be it from thee, Lord, this should never happen to you. And then Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. What are you really trying to do? Are you trying to thwart the scriptures? (laughs) Are you trying to hinder Old Testament prophecy from being fulfilled? It must be fulfilled. It has been announced long ago. He's not going to turn back now. And so uh, he says in verse 26 of Luke 24, he says, was it not necessary for the Christ to enter, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Yes, it was necessary. There was no other way to redeem humanity or to uh, apply the covenant blood blessings to Israel than for Jesus Christ to do the work that he did on that cross. And so in verse 27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. 
And so this is making the point that you see on the screen that God announced this long ago. And he is going to make good on everything that he announced. All of his first advent prophecies and also, thankfully, all of his second advent prophecies also. Because uh, as, as glorious as it is to point to everything that's been fulfilled with Jesus Christ in his first advent, understand it's about a one-third, two-third breakdown. Only about one-third of the, of the messianic prophecies were fulfilled in first advent. Many more apply in second advent. Many more apply for Israel's tribulation and Israel and the, the victories at Armageddon and the establishment of the millennial kingdom and, and everything that we're still waiting for in uh, you know, the lion lying down with the lamb. Have you seen that lately? All right. Uh, no. We're still waiting for the millennium on earth. And we can be, uh, we can be very thankful for that. Down to the same chapter, then Luke 24, down to the verse I did have on the screen, verse 44. This is now uh, in the upper room, and they were all in there with the doors closed and depressed. And then he pops in out of nowhere and says, peace be to you. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're in a locked room and hiding from the uh, authorities, and then all of a sudden Jesus teleports in there and says, peace be to you. And they were startled, thought they were seeing a spirit. Well, in the process of this event in this upper room, he uh, says now, verse 44, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And what we have there in verse 44, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, we have a division. What today the Jewish people call their Tanakh, what, they, what we would call the Old Testament. We have the Hebrew canon of Scripture encapsulated in that phrase there. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And if it's written, it's going to come to pass. God has made promises and God is going to make good on those promises. And so then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures in verse 45. And that's what I'm trying to do here this morning. I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to open our minds that we will understand the scriptures and understand the primary hermeneutic for prophecy is fulfilled versus yet to be fulfilled. All right, fulfilled versus yet to be fulfilled. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, humble, riding on a colt, all of that's fulfilled. Dying on the cross, rising on the third day, all of that's fulfilled. But the victories at Armageddon, the, the uh, trampling down in his wrath, that's not yet fulfilled, okay? And I try not to, I used to use the, the term unfulfilled, and I stopped doing that, all right? It, and maybe I, I'll slip every now and then. Catch me if I do, all right? Don't, don't let me get away with that. I don't want to think of it as fulfilled versus unfulfilled. To me, that's almost dangerous because then you're starting to think, well, he made all these predictions and he made good on some of them and then he kind of blew it on these other ones, okay? No, that's Nostradamus, okay? Nostradamus gets more wrong than right, but people pay attention to him. God gets everything right. And the ones that are already fulfilled, we can think of as past, completed, fulfilled, literally. And the ones that are not yet fulfilled, likewise, will be literally fulfilled fully, completely fulfilled on this earth. And it's the only way to handle the scriptures fairly, particularly in a chapter like this that blends the spectrum from first advent to second advent to tribulation and everything in between. All in the scope of the same passage. You cannot take them differently and be fair to the text. Now, there were some things that were not announced long ago. Some things were not announced long ago. And uh, this should not come as a surprise to anybody reading Isaiah or anybody listening to the Lord and his teaching that uh, the, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. That's been, a, uh, that's been a rule of thumb ever since Deuteronomy. Israel has known that that which was revealed was revealed for their edification, but it was not the totality of everything God could have revealed. And obviously there was much that he did not reveal, including all the mystery doctrine of the church age. And so there were things that were not announced long ago. And we read them already in verses 6 through 8. We can see it again here. Uh, you have heard, look at all this, and will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time. New things from this time. Now, this is a part of the, the evidence that we look to when we consider you know, should we interpret this passage from Isaiah's day and age? Is there something in, in Isaiah's century that they're getting new? Uh, or is this better to think of it in terms of when Israel crucified their Christ and when Jesus himself was announcing new things? 
And by the way, this expression, new thing, shows up several times in Isaiah, and they're either first advent or second advent in their fulfillment. There will be new things spoken of in the millennial kingdom. And uh, we'll say more on that as we get to the, the later chapters. So, uh, hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago. Beho- uh, before today you have not heard them, so that you will not say, I knew that. <laughs> right? You know, we always have, you know anybody like that? No, no, don't raise your hands or anything. Okay? I don't want husbands pointing at their wives or wives pointing at their husbands. Or, but, but there are people with a personality type such as they tend to uh, be know-it-alls or say, I knew that. I knew that. And you can never tell them anything new because oh, I knew that. All right. That's, I think that's the logic behind all these Geico commercials um, about, well, did you know this? Okay. God is giving them information pertaining to the coming of the church. You know, when he's in that upper room discourse, you're reading John 13 through 17, and the disciples, their heads are just spinning. And uh, actually, we'll see that because that's uh, on the screen. Some things were not announced long ago, but are brought about without Israel's awareness. And so this is the beauty of what God does as he unveils what he chooses to unveil, and then he unveils more, and then he unveils more, all right? As he was pleased to do during Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, and as he was pleased to do in the age of the apostles, when the apostles then inspired, or when the Holy Spirit inspired through the apostles, the Greek canon of Scripture to go hand in hand with the Hebrew canon of Scripture. That's why we have Hebrew Scriptures for our Old Testament, Greek Scriptures for our New Testament, and uh, the blessings of being able to relate them one to another. What does it say in 1 Peter chapter 1? Some of you are going to be very familiar with this because uh, I quote it a lot. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter has a lot that he's explaining here in uh, verses 1 through 9, but then he says in verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Old Testament prophets like Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, these ones that we're looking at, they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You and I, I mean, (laughs) we think 66 chapters is tough in 66 weeks. Just thank God we have hindsight. (laughs) Thank God we have the New Testament. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. We have all the portfolio of assets we have to go back to the book of Isaiah now and to understand it in a, in a more comprehensive way than Israel ever could. All right? We are not teaching uh, Isaiah as a rabbi would have taught Isaiah in uh, the Maccabean era because they would have had a very finite perspective looking forward and they would have really struggled with this chapter. They did struggle with this chapter. They struggled with seeing... Man, this seems like good news. This seems like bad news. Ooh, this seems like a glorified Messiah. This seems like a suffering Messiah. And they had these conundrums and these puzzles and they couldn't reconcile. As we read here in 1 Peter 1.10 or 1.11, what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Man, a suffering Christ. That doesn't sound any fun. A glorified Christ. Okay, yeah, preach that. <laughs> you know which ones got, got popular among the rabbis, right? Which ones really preached well in the synagogues? It wasn't the suffering Messiah. And so then arguments back and forth. Is there only one Christ? Is he coming twice? Are there two Christs? Are they coming at the same time? Are they coming at different times? Should we call this one uh, Messiah ben Judah or Messiah ben Joseph? And we'll call this other one Messiah ben David. That's kind of the solution they came to. They say, well, we're probably expecting two Messiahs. And the reigning one, the victorious one, the cool one, that's going to be Messiah ben David. We'll call that one the son of David, Messiah ben David. And then this other poor schmuck, this, this suffering Messiah, we'll just, we'll, that's, that'll be Messiah ben Joseph. And so they kind of started to divide out their, their text that way. And they were wrong. All right? But it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In other words, Old Testament prophets, it was made clear to them that a stewardship was coming after them that would have the complete revelation that they're missing. And that's what you and I have, and thank God for it. And so it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things, which now have been announced to you through those as it says, who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
And not only was it hidden from Israel, it was hidden from even the angels, fallen angels, elect angels. God was pleased to unveil these things at the proper time. This is why the upper room and walk to the garden discourse was so bewildering. Join me in John chapter 13, if you will. On our way back to Isaiah, we can stop off in John 13. And as you're flipping your pages, do you still do that? There are paper Bibles still in this room. All right. Good for you. Of course, I'm a tech guy. I like the software and the... In any event, you'll notice almost everything on these pages is red, okay? Even in the electronic versions, you've got words of Christ in red. And as you work your way through here, you've got 30 verses in uh, chapter 13 where the unbeliever is with them. Judas, the, the traitor. And then he finally gets to his chance to escape and go fetch the soldiers because Jesus told him to, which you do do quickly. And uh, in verse 27, so he departs in verse 30. There goes the traitor in verse 30. After receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. And so therefore, I love this, in verse John 13, 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And for the rest of this chapter, into chapter 14, into chapter 15, into chapter 16, and beyond, there's a prayer in chapter 17. Through this whole section, it's the Upper Room Discourse, commonly called the Upper Room Discourse, although he leaves the Upper Room at the end of chapter 14. And they start walking to the garden in chapter 15 and chapter 16 and the prayer in chapter 17 are not in the upper room. They're during the walk to the garden. So I have a much improved title for this episode is the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. Okay. And I'm going to claim copyright on that too. If anyone plagiarizes me, I want to know about it. But now as you look through this, it's really easy to do. You can scan down these pages and you can see Every time there's a break in the red letters, you find a confused disciple, all right? And why is that? You're scanning down here in chapter 13, and you get you've got a bunch of red verses there in 31 through 35, and then in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> right? Three and a half years, he's been telling him about the cross and telling him about he's going to die and rise on the third day, and, and, uh, and Lord, where are you going? And uh, another red verse, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'm going to lay down my life for you. No, you will deny me three times. And then chapter 14, there's more messages about going to prepare a place for you, about coming again and receiving you to myself. One of the, 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 the very, in fact, the very first ever hint of the rapture of the church is right here in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. When I come again, I will receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. He's not in Jerusalem preparing a place for us today. He hasn't spent the last 2,000 years in Jerusalem preparing our place. He's been in heaven preparing our place. Second Advent, he comes and he conquers in Jerusalem. Rapture, he comes and he takes us to his home. And that's the doctrine here in this chapter. But again, there's a black verse in chapter 14 is verse 5. And what do you see? Thomas said to him, Lord, (laughs) we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Again, a black verse, a confused disciple. You get down to... uh, and then a hard to spot. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot. I'm going to make sure it's the other Judas, okay? Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Again, it's another confused disciple. And all through this section, he's giving them teaching. You're going to abide in my, I'm the vine and you're the branches and abide in me and all these things. And they're just confused, confused disciples. You go all the way to 16, 17 and Some of the disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? (laughs) Right? It's like getting out of church at noon or 12.15 saying, what in the world was Pastor Bob talking about? What was that? All right. So understand, there were explanations for what God withheld from Israel in his wisdom to withhold from Israel until such time it was appropriate to then reveal the new things. So some things were announced long ago, and that proves God is God, and the fallen angels can't counterfeit him. But some things were not revealed 
which also proves God is God and also thwarts the uh, fallen angels that think they can stop what God's going to accomplish. And I find that interesting as well. Understand, wrath delayed and wrath restrained pictures the gap between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. Again, I think that these verses in connection with Daniel chapter 9 are part of the evidence we look at that places this passage in a first advent context. Wrath delayed and wrath restrained. Look at this. He says uh, in verse 9, For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. I delay my wrath. Now, when does he do that? When does he delay his wrath? Because he tells Daniel that there are 77s that have been decreed. 70 weeks have been decreed to bring about his wrath upon the nation of Israel to finish the, the course of judgment and iniquity and everything he's going to accomplish in those 70 weeks. And yet he finishes 69 of those weeks and delays week number 70. Why does he do that? Wrath delayed also, wrath restrained. The present church age in which we operate is, is an age of restraint. If you ever study the restrainer in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. All right. Wrath delayed and wrath restrained pictures the gap in between Daniel's 69th and 70th weeks. Are you familiar with Daniel chapter 9? See, this is something that we would have to stop if we were doing a verse-by-verse study and just take session after session after session to break, break this down. But as God ultimately pursues His own purpose, He knows what He's doing, and He has a delay built in. He planned for it before the foundation of the world. The calling out of the church was not God winging it. Okay? God is not like a, a quarterback scrambling when on a busted play, trying to figure out, well, let me at least try to get some yardage out of this, out of this thing. When he puts Israel's plan on hold and then begins to call out a bride for his son, that too is a part of his eternal plan. It's just a part that he didn't announce long ago. All right? It's a part that he chose to keep as a mystery. But that 70th week is coming. All right? And so uh, let me just show you in Daniel chapter 9 what I'm talking about. And if you want more on this, there are Daniel notebooks in the hallway and uh, if you're a teenager, you can come to our Daniel class on uh, the second and fourth Sunday of every month. Daniel chapter 9. There is a powerful prophecy. One of the most significant uh, timetables in all the Bible is found in Daniel chapter 9 because it marks the beginning of a calendar. And it marks the end of the calendar. In uh, Daniel 9, 24, it says 77s. I know it says weeks, but it's a period of seven years. 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city. This is God's timetable and His timetable for wrath, His timetable for judgment, His timetable to discipline His people and bring them as a holy people into the millennial kingdom to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. Six objectives of these 70 weeks, of these 490 years. Okay, Each of these is a seven-year span. There's seven years of 360-day years. Okay, There's a whole lot of study that goes into this. But he's got a calendar. And that calendar includes 70 of these septads. Okay, Are you with me? You know what a septad is? It's like a decade, only seven instead of ten. Okay? A septad is a block of seven years. And there are 70 septads that have been decreed for Israel's judgment, for their, for their uh, being made holy in preparation to receive the kingdom. But only 69 of them take place as Messiah the Prince is cut off. So verse 25 says, So you were to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem that was issued by Artaxerxes Longimanus on March 5th of 444 B.C. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven and sixty-two. How many is that? Seven plus sixty-two is sixty-nine. We're still missing one. There will be seven sevens and sixty-two septads. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. 
then after the 62 septads, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The 69th septad ended on Monday, uh, March 30th, 33 AD. And Jesus Christ came riding into Jerusalem humbly and riding on a colt. And after that, four days later, on, on Friday, April 3rd, Messiah the Prince was cut off and had nothing. Then the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was 70 AD, 37 years later. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. But we still have only encountered 69 of those 77s. Because in verse 27 is where the 70th finally shows up. The prince who is to come will make a firm covenant with the many for one septad. There's the final septad in verse 27. And that's tribulation. That's still future. But in the middle of the septad, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that hadn't happened yet. That was not Antiochus Epiphanes in the B.C., in the Maccabean era, because Jesus in the first century says that hasn't happened yet. That's still future for the nation of Israel. All right. Wow, there's six weeks worth of teaching in 15 minutes. Okay. But what we have here in in Isaiah 48, the, the delay of the wrath, the restraint, okay? We have little hints and shadows that with our hindsight, we can look back and say, oh, that's wrath delayed, as per 2 Peter 3.9. God is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. And that's wrath restrained in terms of the restrainer of Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. Thankfully, we have this hindsight to be able to connect those passages the way that we do. All right. Let's look at the angels. You say, all right, the heavenly host, they're next. The heavenly host is called to witness the faithfulness of the Lord as both Messiah and the Holy Spirit are being sent to Israel. Again, it's listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I have called. I am. I am the first. I am the last. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. The heavens and the heavenly host stand together when he calls to them. Who did he call to observe the creation of the earth? He called the angels. He said, gather around, watch this. And angels were on hand to watch the creation of the earth. Now he's calling them to witness again. He says, assemble all of you and listen. (laughs) Who among them has declared these things? So he's bringing all of the angels into focus here as well. The heavenly host is called to witness the faithfulness of the Lord as both Messiah and the Holy Spirit are being sent to Israel. And this is something new also (laughs) because first advent he sent... Jesus, and indwelt Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Second advent, who's he going to send? He's going to send Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to indwell all of humanity at the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right. So assemble, verse 14, assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? Obviously, this was not a part of angelic revelation. This was God's plan and program. The Lord loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. In fact, with an outstretched arm and wrath poured out, he's going to bring eschatological Babylon to an end. I, even I have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him and he will make his ways successful. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and, what else? He has sent His Spirit. Oh, this is fun. I'm going to spend weeks on this part too. But I can't. (laughs) All right. Let me just give you the summary and see what uh, we might do with it if we had more time. Obviously, angels is a big study. Angels bore witness to His first advent when the Father sent the Son and then identified His Son by means of the Holy Spirit. You know, this is more than just a Charlie Brown Christmas story. Why did he send the angels? Was it just for the gee whiz value? Was it just to scare the the shepherds, you know, out of their willies and then they would go running to the manger and see if this was really true? More than that. I mean, yes, it accomplished that. (laughs) Imagine you're just a shepherd out there watching your sheep and then these angels show up. That would, uh, that'd be startling. 
But there was more going on, okay? Because God in His wisdom is unveiling His wisdom. He's unveiling His grace. And He's unveiling His grace each step of the way to the angels, to the elect angels and the fallen angels alike. He did so at first advent. He's going to do so at second advent. And uh, the angels had a participatory role in both. Okay? And in between the two advents, with us today in the body of Christ, God is still manifesting His wisdom through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3.10. All right? Won't turn there, but you can look that up. Angels bore witness to His first advent. Luke 2, 9-14. And I think I'm going to save some time and let you... Uh, read that Christmas story on your own. But, uh, but you know it. The shepherds in their fields by night, and here's the angels. Peace, uh, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men. Okay? When God the Father sent His Son, and then identified His Son by means of the Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes to the River Jordan, and here's John the Baptist, baptizes Him in the River Jordan, and what happens next? The heavens are open, and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove, lands upon Jesus Christ. And the voice out of heaven says, this is my beloved son. Okay? So at his first advent, angels bore witness when the father sent his son and then identified his son by means of the Holy Spirit. Second advent. And I think what we have in view here when we're looking at verses 12 through 16. Angels will bear witness to his second advent. In fact, we're told that they are participatory then also in a battlefield capacity. He comes with many of his angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution. Angels will bear witness to His second advent as the Father will send both the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right, that's a big difference. 2 Thessalonians 1.7. Grab this real quickly. Only because folks need it. 2 Thessalonians, if you're ever tempted to take your own vengeance, uh, don't. Okay, we patiently endure, and we grow in grace and knowledge, and we can be thankful for uh, perseverance and faith in the midst of persecution and affliction, which we endure, but understand, God will repay. And if we're suffering for the kingdom, then hey, we're suffering for the kingdom. Thank God for it. First, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.5 says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. And thank God for it. After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now we can rub our hands. Now we can say, yeah, pay back. Go get them, God. They've done me dirt. Go get them, God. But wait, when's it going ha- to happen? Okay. For God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Notice though, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Oh, (laughs) Uh, vengeance hasn't happened yet. Okay, not yet. Not today, not yet. And in the patience of God, guess what? Instead of waiting for that dirty dog to get what's coming to him, maybe you could give the gospel to that dirty dog and he'll get saved by grace through faith, and he won't get what's coming to him. Because what's coming to him already got laid on Christ. Same as what should be coming to me, got laid on Christ. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's what we're looking forward to. We're going to come with him. We're going to be with him in these angels, in, in battlefield victory, the second advent of Jesus Christ. He will be glorified in us of all things, and we will marvel at him, as it says here, marveled at among all who believe. Like the song Doug sang this morning, the king and I, we walk down this road together. Who am I? how can this be that I am a fellow heir with the heir of all things? Also, the uh, Holy Spirit is a promise of the second advent of Jesus Christ. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. A lot of people misteach this because Peter used it in Acts chapter 2. Peter quoted this verse 
as an illustration of the Pentecost event, the start of the church. But any clear reading of uh, Joel 2 makes it clear that this is not church in its application. It is, it is Israel in the second advent. It will come about after this, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. This is second advent. This is global. This is all humanity. Not just 120 people in the upper room and the manifestation of the gift of tongues. This is all humanity globally, worldwide, with a prophetic office for the nation of Israel. So that's second advent. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. None of that happened on Sunday, May 24th of 33 A.D. The church was born in conditions entirely different than the second advent of Jesus Christ. Anyway, read through Joel chapter 2 and understand that. So angels witnessed his first advent. Angels witnessed his second advent. We have this panorama that's taking us through the first and second advent of Jesus Christ here in this chapter. And we come to verse um, 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Okay, how sad. You know, we get to sing, we sing that song, When Peace Like a River... Can you imagine rewriting that song as a would have been? When peace like a river would have been my way. When sorrows like sea billows would have rolled, but sorry. Okay, we have a lament here. We have a lament. All the what ifs. The Holy One of Israel laments the what if that was not to be. And again, I don't want to show of hands. I don't want any kind of, this is not a stand up and confession type of time, but I don't believe there's a single human being in this room who does not have a lamentation over what if. Some mistake in days gone by and the, and the curiosity, the human wonderment of what would it have been? Where would I be? What would it have been like? All right, and here's the Lord lamenting this. The Holy One of Israel laments this what if. A what if that was not to be. It's, it's uh, well, described here in these terms. Your, right, your well-being would have been like a river. Your righteousness would have been like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Would have been. Now, it still eventually will be, but there's going to be this delay. It still eventually will be, not for their sake, but for God's sake. He has to be faithful to his eternal promises in Abraham. And yet, this would have been is expressed by virtue of the delay. This message is best understood from the perspective following Daniel's 69th week. In other words, this is what they can lament in the fact that now their city is destroyed. Now they're going into global dispersion. Now they are no longer the stewards of God's plan on earth. Now all of a sudden the scriptures are being written in a Gentile language. There's a whole new creation that is neither Jew nor Gentile. And everything that was Israel's covenant blessing is no longer in operation for the time being. Not forever, but just for the time being. So this message is best understood from the perspective immediately following the 69th week. The sad what-ifs from our perspective are all known and dealt with in God's omniscient divine decree. We could be thankful that God knows every what-if in the Bible. He knows every what-if, and He's in complete control over all of it. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. It's a, big, it's a big issue and one that I hope we're clear on. In Matthew chapter 11, this is, this is a chapter that gives us one of the clearest definitions of God's omniscience, how God knows everything. Not everything that is, more than that, everything that is not but could be if other things are different. Okay? All the parallel universes, all of the alternate timelines, all of the, uh, the uh, could'ves, would'ves, and should'ves of, of all existence. And God has a sovereign, omniscient awareness of every single one of them. 
In Matthew chapter 11, he's rebuking the cities where most of his miracles had been done because they did not repent. And he said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So it's an if, and it's not true, but if it had been true, this is what the result would have been. If, if the, the miracles that Jesus did in Chorazin and Bethsaida, if they'd have been done in Tyre and Sidon, even those pagan places would have repented. So it shows you how dark, how negative these uh, cities were in his own day and age. Likewise, Capernaum, verse 23, you Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if, now it's not true, but he says if it had been true, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you. All the miracles Jesus did in, in Capernaum, and they rejected him as the Messiah. But those very same miracles, Lot could have done them, or Abraham could have done them, or somebody could have done them, back when, when Sodom was still around. And had that taken place, Sodom would have repented. Sodom not only would have repented, but would have remained to this day. There would be ongoing effects 2,000 years later. That is an absolutely serious parallel universe timeline. In other words, not just you know a, a day out, a week out, a month out of how things would be different, but how things would be different 2,000 years later. Sodom would still be in a city in existence in the, in the generation of Jesus Christ. That's powerful. The sad what-ifs, they're all known and dealt with in God's omniscient decree. So we can take comfort in the fact that everything that he has permitted in his permissive will, he's going to work together for good. In spite of the dumb choices we make, he limits the damage, he overrules, and he still achieves his glory in spite of every mistake you and I ever make. Jesus expressed the same lamentation of Isaiah. In fact, it's, it's, when, you, when you read these verses in Isaiah, you can almost hear Jesus in his lamentation from Matthew chapter 23. Again, let me just reread Isaiah here. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments. Just, just fig, f- imagine Jesus saying this on Thursday, April 2nd. Okay? His final day of preaching in the temple before he's arrested that night. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river. Your righteousness would have been like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, and your offspring would have been like its grains. Their name would have been or would never have been cut off or destroyed from my presence. They could have avoided the, the Roman destruction in 70 AD and moved into, immediately into their kingdom. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Do you hear the same tone, the same lament? the same mindset of what could have been and wasn't going to happen, but it could have. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jewish people as a nation must have a repentance and a, and a identification of the Christ whom they crucified. They have to call upon not only their coming Messiah, but their crucified Messiah. And only then will he come at second advent. That's, uh, that's extraordinary. All right. So some of this is bigger than we can handle on a single Sunday. All right. And does some of this make you thankful that we have a God in heaven who has all of this worked out? Some of us struggle with our own uh, reconciliation. We really we want to plunge into a, into a conundrum because it kind of seems like how does God balance sovereignty with, with volition? How does he balance God's sovereignty with human free will? How does sovereignty, does it get, does it get are God's hands tied when humans sin and rebel? Is this somehow diminish God's sovereignty when 
human beings are permitted to, to defy him. And so there's, there's a whole scope of, of debate that falls into Calvinism versus Arminianism versus Almarillianism and all these different positions and views, okay? We're not going to get into any of that this morning. We're just going to say, thank God that he has a handle on all of this. He knows every what if. And the things he permits, he still has an overall plan that he achieves for the total glory of Jesus Christ. Not one purpose of his is, is thwarted. Sometimes I like to say, you know what? It's still sovereignty because God sovereignly gave me my volition. How about that? And even when I exercise it negatively, he permits me to exercise it negatively. But then he rebukes me and then he gets me back on track. All right, finally. Fleeing Babylon. Fleeing Babylon. Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. And this is, again, part of the evidence, part of the, the uh, uh, clues that we look for in this text to properly place it, not in Isaiah's day and age, but to place this in, uh, in its proper eschatological framework. We've gone from first advent to tribulation to second advent, and now we're seeing more here on the tribulation. Flee from Babylon. Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. Declare with a sound of joyful shouting. Proclaim this. Send it out to the ends of the earth and say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. In other words, they're not just running in fear, scared of the Babylonians. They are worshiping God by fleeing from Babylon because they are obeying the covenant of their God. They are praising Yahweh Elohim, their Redeemer. And so they are praising. Send to the Lord. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And he's going to take care of them. He's going to take care of them in the tribulation or wilderness like he took care of Israel in Moses' day, going through the wilderness between Egypt and, and Canaan. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. Day by day by day, the Lord provided for Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. He is going to take care of the Jewish people during the coming tribulation. But they need to obey. They need to flee Babylon as uh, Babylon is about to be destroyed. All right. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Does that verse seem disconnected? Does it seem odd that verse 22 is coming the way that it's coming there? It is perfectly placed. Because in a tribulational setting, Israel has been operating under a blindness. Many within Israel have signed their pact with Antichrist under this great promise of peace, peace. But there is no peace. All right. The only peace will come when the Prince of Peace delivers Israel, redeems Israel, and brings them under the bond of the covenant. Fleeing Babylon becomes essential so as not to identify with the wrath of God poured out. And in fact, Revelation 18 is the corollary to this, where they are commanded to come out and flee from the wrath of God in Babylon. This is why we want to understand it eschatologically. We want to understand it in uh, the proper setting of the tribulation of Israel. Why they must flee. They were never commanded to flee Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. They were flat out told, you're going to go into captivity in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. But here they're told to flee Babylon. And so uh, when you take a look at Revelation 18 and you see this, uh, verse 4 says, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sin has piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. I wonder if there's a day coming prior to the rapture that God's people will decide that they no longer can identify with the iniquity of the United States of America. When does the day come that we have to flee and find uh, a place that will not come under the judgment for her sins and receiving wrath for her plagues? Makes me wonder sometimes. All right, so this message is best understood from Israel's perspective immediately preceding Daniel's 70th week. Understand the historical Babylon of Daniel and Ezekiel's day was not to be escaped. He never commanded them to flee from Nebuchadnezzar or to flee from Babylon. It was rather to be freely. They were going to be released by God's shepherd, Cyrus. They were going to live 70, day, 70 years in captivity, and then Cyrus, his shepherd, was going to let them go. So fleeing from Babylon makes no sense in a, in a 5th or 6th century B.C. context, but it makes perfect sense in connection with Revelation 18 and the coming tribulation. 
of Israel. You can read through Isaiah 44, 28. You can read through Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4. But the eschatological Babylon of the tribulation, that must be escaped. There a flea message is very appropriate so as not to identify with her wickedness and not to experience her judgments. And so this uh, flee Babylon imperative, go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, uh, makes a much better sense in uh, a tribulational context. All right, Lord willing and rapture pending, we'll move on to chapter 49, our next time together. Looking forward to chapter 49 because we have one of the clearest pictures of Christ. You are my servant and we have the, uh, the glory of Christ here. But stay tuned, okay? Chapter 49 yet to come. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together this morning. And Father, we realize that a message like Isaiah is so uh, large, comprehensive, we want to understand in a, in a big picture kind of way the overall thrust of what every chapter is dealing with. And then we want to recognize that we've got to go back. We've got to look at it again. We've got to go into the detail a little bit here, a little bit there. Line upon line, precept upon precept. And I thank you, Father, that you don't expect us to learn it all today. You don't expect us to learn it all tomorrow. But you do expect us to live in your word day by day, moment by moment. We're to spend the rest of our time on earth living in your word, Father, learning a little bit here and learning a little bit there. And Father, as we abide in your word, we are truly your disciples. I thank you, Father, for what you've provided. I thank you for the not only the information you give us, but the power you give us as your word transforms our very being. I pray, Father, that, that the message you've given today might likewise just take up residency within each one of us, that we would dwell on it, think about it, chew on it, consider it, and then fall amazed, Father, at how, how glorious your plan is. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. Thank you for letting us walk with your Lord, with our Lord, your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.